This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Welcome back to The Forging Table. The mission of Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. At The Forging Table, you will see a group of regular guys forging spiritual resilience by digging into God's Word, and we're welcoming all of you to come along on that journey with us. That's Dagan. That's Adam. That's the horn. We're going to dig into Matthew 20 today, but uh, you're going to see from the text, and all of you should have read this before you got here because that's the that's the job. That's the one thing you owe us here at the forging table is to at least have read the text before you get here. I want to talk about bad jobs, the worst job you've ever had. Okay. Now, Dagan, you're already shaking your head, so I can tell you got a good one, but I'm going to launch out from the beginning because not all of us are like you, Adam, where, you know, we go through school, we get our CPA and we immediately go to work as a CPA and you, you kind of have your track for your life ready to go. So the worst job I had, we are, so I graduated 2008 from college. Uh, you might remember 2008, 2009 financial crisis. There aren't jobs, nobody's hiring. So I graduate top of my class and I can't find a job like at all. Right. So I was selling insurance there for a little bit. I was a part-time teller at a bank. Uh, like there was all these bad jobs, but at the time it's like, okay, my wife and I just got married. Like at some point we got married in 2009. It's like, all right, I'm going to prove to her that we can, you know, I'm going to do whatever it takes to provide. And so, you know, I was mowing lawns and I was helping people like with, you know, building countertops and doing different things like that. But then I got this job where I was selling coupon books door to door. Okay. Now when I say coupon books, these were actually legit coupon books, but it would be for like uh, family fun parks or spas or like the Texas Rangers or something like that. And it's one of those books that you pay 20 bucks. And if you actually use one or two of the coupons, you basically make up uh, the cost of it. But basically the job, what they would do is they would give you a, a map, like a, a zip code or a map, a section of the city that you were in, and you were to walk door to door to businesses and or neighborhoods selling these coupon books. Okay. And so I take this job in like August and you have to wear a suit and tie. And we live in Oklahoma. And so I'm in a suit and tie all day long, walking my grid, right? Going door to door. And the people that like, uh, that trained me, they were so dopey. Like they would literally walk in the door and be like, you know, walk right past the no solicitation sign and go, Hey, is this where the party's at? And the person at the front desk would be like, I'm sorry, sir. How can I help you? Oh, uh, Jim was just telling me this is where the party's at, but Hey, I'm here on behalf of Andy alligators, family fun park. Uh, how many of you in here have kiddos? And I'm like, oh man, I have to become this person if I'm going to be successful. And we got paid. This is what we got paid. We got paid $10 every time we sold a coupon book. So if you sold 10 coupon books in a day and you made a hundred bucks, you were like gold medal level, like salesperson, right? And so I lasted two weeks and this is the only job I quit via voicemail. Like I called my boss and I literally was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm not only not coming in, I can't come in. And guys, for years afterwards, I would drive by mini malls and get like a, a miniature panic attack because just the thought of like staring at a mini mall and all the different, you know, people and all the different businesses that were in there that I would have to walk in, disrupt their day to sell a coupon book, like by far to this day, the absolute worst job I ever had. So somebody please stop that because it was terrible. My first job when I got out of college was an auditor. And so I do taxes now. People like me because I try to help them make their taxes go down. When you're an auditor, nobody wants to see you coming because when you're the auditor, you're this kid out of college who thinks they know what they're doing, who really doesn't, but you're going to come in and review somebody else's work and try to tell them why they're wrong. My first job was in Cleveland, Ohio, in a concrete basement in the dead of winter. 
it was about four degrees outside, snowing, freezing cold. They had no heater in this room, and I sat in a metal chair on a metal table. Do they want you to quit? They want <laughs> you out. That's the, that's the whole purpose, because you're there doing this audit, and they don't want you there. It's the bank who's hired us mm. or uh, a larger VC company. And so the people there that were doing the audit, they don't want you there. So they're going to put you in the most uncomfortable position possible. And I remember freezing in that basement for a good two or three weeks before the audit was done and was excited that I had just spent five years of my life at college and getting my CPA to go waste away in a basement in Cleveland, Ohio. Did somebody come by every like 30 minutes and tell you to put the lotion on the skin? (laughs) Put the lotion in the basket. Is that your job? Because hopefully that has to do with what your bad job was. We didn't have a a coupon for that. You didn't have a coupon for that. I never never really had a bad job. Um, My job out of uh, college was... uh, I worked for a uh, medical device company, so I went straight into sales and uh, became a product manager for this uh, company. And um, the best story that I have was we had this lady, she was kind of like, I think she was bipolar, but she'd always get on people's nerves, but then she'd act like your best friend. And um, she was giving me a hard time one day and I was good friends with the COO and he came by and he's like, hey man, could be worse. He goes, one of my plumbing pipes to my house cracked today. And uh, the plumber came by. He goes, I got out that morning and he didn't know I was in the backyard. But I was out in the backyard having my cigarette and all I could hear was, oh, God. Uh, oh, God. <laughs> this is my job. This is what I chose to do. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? That's, that, make, that makes you search your soul right there. You know, it like, could be worse. I could be knee deep in that guy's crud, you know. But, um, but yeah, I, I think that would be the, that's the worst job story I've, I've heard. My jobs have been pretty uh, god's blessed me so i haven't had anything too bad well that's super lame Dagan. save us Sorry. we need bad Man, job stories we don't need blessed I, stories I, I i've got one quick one my worst job in high school uh or in college we would get uh christmas time jobs like christmas season jobs at honey baked hams in oklahoma city glazing ham and when you get told you're going to get paid money and then it's all the ham you can eat as a college kid you're like this is <laughs> yes. amazing this is amazing and then like two hours into glazing hams, you're just like, you're so repulsed by the word ham, the smell of ham, the glaze. You're literally like putting this gelatinous funk all over these baked hams and you're like blow torching it. And, uh, it, it was, it was foul. It was rancid. And like, uh, I haven't been able to eat like Christmas hams literally since I know how you feel. No Christmas ham for me. None. None. I've literally said the phrase ham is life. Like, A, a lot of times in my life no, and you can't do it. No, if you spent, if you spent November glazing hams, you'd change your, your tune who, on that. Who I eats ham for Christmas? It's just Turkey. No, I eat ham for Christmas. That's ham like, no Christmas. dude, yeah. if you get a turkeys choice for Thanksgiving, yeah, turkeys for Thanksgiving, it's Turkey for both. I do Turkey ham for, for both. both. Ham for both. Uh, your no. Turkey and ham, ham for both. Yes. Ham for both. What? Why would you do turkey for both? Because ham's terrible. Your ham turkey's is terrible. delicious. What are you talking about? Ham is good. Okay, mm. did he just rub I'm, off I'm on actually, you by sitting yeah. next to you? Ham is amazing. Wow. What is wrong with you? I'm going to get my honey-baked ham for Christmas when it comes around this year. Yeah. I get it well, every year. Well, some poor college schlub had to glaze yeah. that stuff. Well, I worked at an ice cream store, so I couldn't, I couldn't eat ice cream for like five years because I was like, if I smell freaking cream, I'm going to throw up. I started drinking my coffee black then. 
so. we're gonna have some issues I, I still i don't know if i can get over this ham thing like i just because turkey's fine especially like a smoked turkey or a deep fried turkey like where it's actually like moist yeah. and yeah like yeah. there you can have good turkey but you can eat ham year round i'll just i'll come if you make ham at your house on a random thursday in march i'm coming you right? have any type of pork at your house he's there yeah well <laughs> eh, you can take that We'll just keep going. <laughs> There's so many kinds of pork I'm thinking about right now. We got to get to the Bible. Right. Guys, hurry up. Let's, let's go to the Bible before something bad happens. Okay, Dagan, let's read about the laborers in the vineyard. So let's read Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of an estate who went out in the morning at dawn to hire workmen for his vineyards. When he had, when he had agreed with the laborers for, den- for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And when he went out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. And they went. He went out about the sixth hour and ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing around. He said to them, why haven't you, why have you been standing here idle all day? They answered him because no one hired us. And he told them, you go into the vineyard also. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last and ending with the first. Those who had been hired at the 11th hour came and received a denarius each. Now, when the first came, they thought they would get more money, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they protested and grumbled at the owner of the estate, saying, these men who came last worked one hour, and yet you have made them equal to us who have carried the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But the owner of the estate replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no injustice. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go, but I choose to give to this last man the same as I give to you. Am I not lawfully permitted to do what I choose and, uh, with what is mine? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So those who are last shall be first and those who are first last. So my very first note on this, I just got to admit, was I hate this parable. I absolutely (laughs) stink and hate it because I would have been the person in the crowd that's like, yeah, there's an injustice happening here. Because one thing that's interesting, there's so many colloquialisms uh, or sayings in culture that come from scripture, even though no one really knows it. So when it's talking about the 11th hour, like, oh yeah, this guy got me his, you know, all of his W-2s and whatever at the 11th hour or something like that. <clears throat> what he's saying is, this is a 12 hour shift. People were hired for a 12 hour shift. And these dudes were hired with 11 hours of the shift behind them right? So they came in for one twelfth of the time and got the same exact amount of money. And if I was the dude that worked in the vineyard for 12 hours and then I saw some schlub get over there and get in there and not even, not even start sweating by the time we were done, I would have been furious, which means this story is exactly for me. This is exactly for me because I feel this injustice and I got to, you know, take care of this injustice. But there's a reason why in this story, the owner of the land paid the last people first. He wanted the first people, the people that had been working all day to see this. Again, this is a story. This is a made up story. It's a parable, but I don't know if you guys had like, I had a Dagon candied ham reaction to this story to where I was just repulsed by it. I hated every last bit of it. So I don't know if y'all reacted the same way, but yeah, this was like a visceral one for me because I knew it was directly for me. 
I didn't get repulsed by it. I've, I felt convicted by it. Um, especially like just thinking back about how you become a Christian. Um, back when I, when I started becoming a Christian, I was very legalist and very much about, Oh, I've done all these things. And I think what, what God's saying right here is, is saying, you know, we should be happy for those who, um, find him, you know, at the 11th hour. And so I kind of looked at it in, in that way. It's just like, Hey, I'm looking at these Pharisees and Sadducees who feel like they're leading their lives by hitting every note in the, in the law. But now they're seeing these prostitutes and these tax collectors coming to, to Christ and coming to what God finds, you know, beautiful. And, but they feel like they, they're owed more. It come to, comes back to the last episode we talked about, about being owed. And it's just not having a grateful heart for you. You agreed to do this for a denarius. These guys came in and agreed to do it for denarius. But now you think you're owed more and you're worth more because you've done something longer. I was like, man, that really made me think like I can become across, you know, very legal minded, dotting the I's and crossing the T's when I should be like happy. You know, for somebody, it's like the baptism thing that we talked about. Like someone says, you know, oh, my, my, my daughter accepted Christ and she believes in him. It's like, well, you know, you want to go into the theology aspect of everything and say, no, God, God, God had sovereignty over her. You know, no, you don't say that. You just, you, you relish in the beauty of what just happened. One to people that don't know exactly what Ryan's talking about. So when we were having one of our reformed Calvinist, you know, different debates or whatever, you will have, I guess you could call them, you know, the cage stage Calvinist that, yeah. If somebody were to say, uh, you know, they're telling the story about how they got saved and they were like, yeah. And you know, I, I accepted Christ when I was 14 years old or whatever. They'd be like, "Er, er, er, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, you didn't do anything. God shows you. That means you're elect. Stop being a moron. And so, whereas like, you know, you, you've admitted Ryan that you were in a cage stage for a certain period where you would have been one of those Theo bros, like throwing one of those poison darts out. Oh, for sure. But now it's just like, who cares what you say? So typically when I, like I was on an interview not that long ago where I was like, uh, you know, when I was in high school, depending upon your theological preferred language, uh, I chose Christ or Christ snatched me up. Yeah. Who cares? And then we just kind of move on. And isn't that the better posture? What you said to just, just be excited that yeah. a soul was saved. Don't be like mince words with like, oh, they use a word in the prayer. I didn't like be excited that your brother got a denarius. He's going to be able to feed his family tonight. Right. You know? Like, yeah, you worked harder, but you agreed to do that. But, but I honestly, I don't parent that way. You know, like, like we, we have this tree in our backyard and it, the wind blows and I don't know what's wrong with this tree, um, but sticks continually fall. I mean, sticks fall off this tree, like hair off my head in the shower. Right. And I'm like, <laughs> how is this tree still a tree every year? Cause I'm picking up these sticks, but I, I get my kids out there and I incentivize them. Like I'm going to pay them but I'm going to pay them for like how many sticks they bring me. Right. Mm. So if somebody brings me this, like they got three sticks, well, they're not getting as much money as my hardworking middle daughter, who's going to get loads and loads of sticks. Right. That's like my mentality. It's there's a quantitative and qualitative element to work that this scripture completely blows out of the water. And I'm, I'm a little bit more on your side where like, I'm not immediately happy for everybody, you know, like, <laughs> no. I, but you know, I'm sorry. Like you say that I'm like, man, I am, I'm a punk. I'm not happy for these people, but I, I don't, I don't treat people that way. You know, like if I have employees, there are people that 
that get bigger Christmas bonuses than others. Well, and, and it's merit-based, right? Like, mm. so, so it's hard for me to see this and immediately like receive it as, oh, this, oh yeah, that's to- that totally makes sense. I have to work my place in a, I've got to work myself into a place to get there. What about your neighbor who hits the lottery? Are you happy for them or are you jealous? Um, He's smiling, ladies and gentlemen. That means he is jealous. Do have no, you had a neighbor no, hit the lottery? Like, like I, I got a neighbor that if he hit the lottery, I'd be so so happy for him. I got another neighbor that if he hit the lottery, I'd be furious. <laughs> <laughs> I want to come over for a ham dinner, and I can so I can meet both of these neighbors. Yep, see my, if I can guess which one. My my, t- my type A personality and my experience has always been Dagan. What you're talking about. Hard work gives positive results, and that's what we're trying to strive towards. And so when you see somebody circumvent that, and you see this story where somebody's gone and done an end around and gotten the reward without the hard work, it makes me mad. Yeah. Very mad. Well, well it's, it's, it's giving out, it, it's not keeping score at soccer games in Little League and giving everybody a participation trophy. And I know that's, that, that's probably jumped the shark and we don't care about that anymore, but that was a big deal. Like when I was an early dad. Yeah. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like, it's an opportunity to teach people how to be gracious winners mm. and uh, or humble winners and gracious losers. Like we're taking that out and just calling it all. So I kind of correlate that to this. It's like, well, I, I can get sour on this because of, of there's a feeling of deserve. I couldn't get but, sour on it though, because it's, and it comes back to this verse right here. Friend, am I doing you no wrong? Did you not agree with me for a, a denarius? It's like you agreed to it. Like when I read that, I'm like, yeah, I can see why you're upset. But then I'm also looking at like, you just didn't know how to negotiate very well. Well, yeah. you know, I have this same <laughs> gripe because I don't follow the NFL closely because apparently I'm a racist and so I'm not allowed to watch the NFL. And so <clears throat> the, the thing about every training camp, you have four or five prominent players that will hold out for a new contract, which means they signed a contract. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, they were they couldn't sign it fast enough to make millions of dollars to play a child's game, and then at some point they have a better season than what they were expecting, and then they want to hold out and basically hold themselves and their talent ransom over the rest of the team until they get what they want. And I've always thought about this because I typically take the side of the business owner or the the owners in these types of disputes, but it's like. The owners are taking the risk. So a better example would be Major League Baseball because the contracts are guaranteed. So Shohei Otani last year signed the the biggest contract in North American sports history, $700 million over 10 years, 680 million of which is deferred, which what a great job by the Dodgers. That dude's getting paid 2 million bucks a year to be basically Babe Ruth and he's going to get paid all of it on the back end, but we won't won't dig in. But if Shohei Otani in spring training uh, takes a fastball to the face and he can't baseball no more. You know how much money he's owed by the Los Angeles Dodgers? $700 million. Now they're going to take out an insurance policy on that. And they're, they're going to be able to find some ways to, to counteract some of the negative things that's going to happen. The owner is taking the risk. And so why would you not just be thankful for the contract that you signed, why not like when, when teachers complain about how much they don't get paid, it's like you signed on the dotted line to do the job and it's guaranteed payment and it's almost impossible to get fired. What are you complaining about? I like your sports analogy and it reminds me of U.S. women's soccer. Same thing. Oh, man. All of the money comes in yep. and the men get X and then not near as much money comes in for the women and the women demand that they must have X. Exact same number. 
it doesn't make sense. Their percentage is drastically higher if they're going to demand the exact same pay. Yeah. And luckily for them, they don't get what they deserve. When people talk about NBA salaries and WNBA salaries. So if you take out the amount of money that the NBA gives to the WNBA to keep them afloat, basically keeping them afloat for the last 30 years, like if these women, these women would have to pay to play basketball if things were absolutely fair. And so that's the thing that I remember with, with something like this, because I remember the first time I had to have a kind of a come to Jesus with myself about a deathbed salvation and how unfair that felt because Mickey Mantle, who is an Okie, you know, one of the, the greatest baseball players ever played for the Yankees, number seven, switch hitter, like all the things, has all the records, one of the greatest players literally of all time. The, the story goes that he accepted Christ on his deathbed. And also the story goes that he wasn't a very good dude uh, throughout his life. He was an amazing baseball player, but an atrocious human being. And then on his deathbed, he accepted Christ. And then you will have people use the example of, let's say everyone uses Hitler. So let's say Stalin. Okay. So Joseph Stalin is responsible for millions, if not tens of millions of deaths over his life, an incredibly cruel, like a historically cruel human being. What if on his deathbed, a priest had come to his, his side and preached the gospel to him and he accepted it? we would all turn in to the people that started working at the first hour yeah, yeah. because we couldn't possibly fathom how someone so depraved and someone so sinful in our eyes got in at the last minute. Like well, it would just violate all of our understandings the, the of justice on the cross. Exactly. Yeah, right. Well, exactly. But that's the thing is we want to go after, like, we use Joseph Stalin as an example. Like, yeah, maybe he accepts the gospel, but what do you do when you're accepting the gospel? You're repenting. And if he repented for all that he did, that's an amazing thing for somebody to come to that self-realization and know that they were wrong. And no, no, no one's doubting that at all. I think that's the part we miss when we say like, all right, he accepts the gospel. Everybody thinking like, oh, he just, he believes in Jesus, but nobody believes of the after effect of <laughs> the repentance. And we don't talk about that. And I think that's what we should talk about. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I, we skipped over something that I think is hilarious. The very, very, first line of this, the first sentence. I think like if someone came up to you on the street and said, Hey, you're a Christian man. Like, tell me like, what, what, what's heaven like? And you said, well, you know, heaven's like the owner of an estate who went out in the morning at dawn to hire workmen for his vineyard. I mean, you're quoting scripture with that answer, right? Yeah, and they're right. going to be like, so confused. I just, I'm sorry. I read that and thought, man, that is uh, that's, that's an incomplete thought right there without going into further context. I think it, it also shows like you're going to be cared for in heaven. You're going to be taken care of no matter if you're first or last. Just be grateful. Yeah. And I think uh, another thing that was happening here, again, I don't want to you know, impugn motive to, to Jesus here, but he's, he's showing people, especially the disciples, because who had more license to be cocky than the apostles? right? They're Jesus's chosen 12. Uh, they, you know, they're, they're special. And as we'll see here in a little bit, some maybe are more special than others, or at least want to be treated as such. But you get into this circumstance where you have uh, cherished access to the Messiah. And wouldn't it be so easy for them to downgrade future believers and conversions down the road? Because they didn't get to walk around with Jesus for a few years. Like they, they didn't get to see the miracles. They were endowed with some of his powers when he went away to be by himself for a little bit when they were sent out, which that's what apostle means is like those that are sent. And so like, just imagine being that person and being so like feeling high and mighty over some 
lowly person with some disease that comes to faith in Christ because of something they saw, like perhaps the resurrected Messiah. And I think it's exactly right. The thief on the cross, which what you talked about, which every time I hear thief on the cross now, I think of Alistair Begg and that just absolute fire part of his sermon. But the thief on the cross and Billy Graham are the same. In, in the eyes of God, you know, and, and there are differences in first Corinthians three, you know, he talks about the different levels of reward and, and, and all that. And we, we don't need to necessarily get into that, but it's like everybody gets salvation. Can you imagine people in heaven complaining about the golden road leading up to their house being a little bit bumpier than the guy next to him? Like that would just be such a silly thing, but that's basically what people are like quibbling about with a story like this. Um, let's go ahead and keep it going. Oh, before we do, I do want to talk about that stack of books right there. Just very briefly. If you guys want to start your own forging table, go to the show notes, that stack of books right there. That is a partnership we've done with Crossway. It's five books that you can get for 50% off and it's going to help you. There's a Bible in there. There's a devotional. There's some great materials and there's a promo code that you can check out here in the show notes. It's just BSSP50. Uh, that's Bravo Sierra, Sierra Papa 50. All the ways that you can get that stack of books. If you want to get serious about doing your own Bible study, check that out. It is in the show notes. So let's go to the next part here. Adam, if you can read Matthew 20, 17 through 19. Verse 17. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. So this is the third time that we see that Jesus has predicted his own death and resurrection. And so... I don't know if you, you guys found something else as, as you were digging in, but I'm still shocked that the apostles are shocked because again, we know the entire narrative. So it's very convenient for us to look at this and be like, what a bunch of idiots, but he's, he's not implying to them what's going to happen to him. He's telling them what's going to be happened. Like, look, I'm, yeah, I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be flogged and I'm going to be crucified. And everyone knew what that meant. Because crucifixion, uh, I think Eugenia Constantinou's book, The uh, Crucifixion of the King of Glory, is, is great for understanding this. It was so visceral in this moment, the word crucifixion. It was one of those words that if you said it, people would be like, oh, I don't even want to think about that because of how demeaning it was, how painful it was, and how ubiquitous it was. This is just what the Romans did. This would be like us in modernity having public floggings and public executions. In some circumstances, I think that should be brought back. Yeah, you're a pedophile. You get caught with a kid. Sorry, we're going to string you up and we're going to kill you right now. And so, but like at this time to tell your followers, look, I'm going to be crucified. And none of them remembered what he said. But don't worry, guys. Three days after this horrible, horrible thing that you're going to witness, I'm coming back. We have no indication from the scripture that the disciples, the apostles were waiting on him. Everyone thought he was dead and that was the end of the story. How? I just don't get it. I think it's interesting that, yeah, they thought it had to have been hyperbole or exaggerated. It wasn't exactly what he was saying. They just thought, okay, well, he's saying this for some reason, but we don't understand why. This isn't really going to happen. He has been preaching in parables. Right. So, yeah, yeah. Come right off Did preaching they think in this parables. Was a parable? and, yeah. This is a parable again. Yeah. You know, I, I think like if I'm in the disciples' position and I'm hearing this, you know, they've been waiting for this Messiah, but I think their, their vision of the Messiah was like this conquering, mm-hmm. you know, going to come free them. And really what they felt like they needed to be freed from was Rome, right? They didn't have this, like, well, I need to be freed from sin. They kind of had their avenue through sacrifice and stuff to, to, 
to get that. So, so they didn't really understand the mission. So for them to hear this, I think like, are they, are they thinking to themselves like, wait, 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 like you're, you're supposed to like conquer Rome. You're not supposed to like, like go surrender to them, to have them like kill you in this terrible way. Right. And so that's what the Jews were, were looking forward to like for thousands of years was their conquering war hero. And we'll see this here in the next few weeks when we talk about how Jesus was welcomed into, into Jerusalem. He was welcomed like a conquering king. And you, you can see that by the fact that they laid their cloaks down and you only did that for you know a conquering hero or the, or the king or the aristocracy of the time. And so, yeah, that's a great point. <clears throat> what else on, on that part right there? I, again, I'm just... I'm always shocked, but I mean, I never thought about that way, Ryan, that maybe they were thinking he was talking in parables again and that he didn't actually mean it. But man, you would think that somebody would would have been paying attention throughout this process and would have just reminded me, guys, like, oh, I just remembered Jesus crucified. Guys, 72 hours is going to be a party. And none of them did. And that this message was only for them. He took them aside to just talk to those 12. And you would think if you're sitting around the table, this is the third time he's told us a story. Maybe we should figure this out. You know, something just occurred to me. Um. How many times has Jesus or how many times has God communicated something to me? And I was like, yeah, I don't get it. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, or, or, I just, or maybe you heard it and you chose not to listen to it. I'm like, right. oh, I can't really mean that. Yeah. Look, like look at the that's last parable, the last parable. You're like, oh man. Oh, well, I, I think I've, t- I've talked about this on the show as well. Like the, I, I always hated the parable of the prodigal son because yeah. I thought the, the kid should have died with the pigs. It's like, screw that little yeah. lazy idiot. Like I was always for the older brother. I was like, the older brother is righteous. I get it. And it wasn't until our, you know, second string pastor at our church did a sermon on it where it just like, it finally clicked like through my, you know, uh, through all my defense systems in my brain. It's like, the older brother's just as lost as the younger brother. It's been there the entire time. Like the other guy's just, just a, a dork and a jerk off. And then this, this guy's just like self-righteous and it's like, they're equally lost. And I like, I was always mad at the dad. Like, why would you kill the fattened calf for the stupid son? And it was just like, Oh man, this is all so perfect. But again, that's, that's, that's where things like how many times did God try to communicate to me through that story? And I was like, God, I don't think you, I don't think you're right on that story. I think you're thinking about this wrong, even though you gave me everything, including my brain to reckon, but yeah, sure. Let's just say you're wrong. Yeah. And we're saying that it's ridiculous. It's the third time that they've heard it, but how many times did we hear about the Israelites wandering in the desert over and over and over and screwing up? So I guess the, the whole thing is that humans are really, really stupid and we just don't really listen. We will never have the knowledge of God. Yeah. Well, well, that's the thing is when, okay. So when you're given scripture, is this not the knowledge of God? Is that not what we're holding here? And again, we always try to put ourselves in these pages. Like these stories are about us. And a great reminder, Matt Chandler, is that the Bible's not about you. Nope. The, Bi- the Bible's for you, right? But it's not about you. You're not David. The story of David and Goliath, your, your problems with the, that person at work, that is not Goliath. Your problems with the IRS, that is not Goliath. Like it's just simply a story that's pointing to the narrative of Christ the, the totality of the narrative of scripture is pointing to one person in one event and that's Christ and the resurrection and the crucifixion. And that's what the Bible's for. It's to give you that knowledge of why you need God and why you need Christ. We're never going to understand God fully a hundred percent because we don't have that knowledge. We only have what he gives us. That's right. All right. Let's hit this next section here. Let's go to verses 20 through 28. Ryan, you want to hit it? Yep. All right, let's go. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you desire? She said to him, 
Say that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine shall sit on your right and on your left. But Jesus replied, you do not not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit at my right and to sit at my left is not mine to give, but it's for those whom it has been prepared by my father. And after hearing this, the other ten disciples became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles domineer over them, and that those in high positions exercise authority over them. I think I read through 25. My apologies. Oh, go through 28. Yeah. You want to go through 28? Yeah. It is not this way among you, but whoever wants to become prominent among you shall be your servant, and whoever desires to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there's quite a bit that we can discuss here. Um, just to kick us off, the mother is Salome, I think is how you would say it, S-L, or S-A-L-O-M-E, and she is talking about the sons of Zebedee, which is James and John. Um, now, what I saw is that this, this woman is likely Jesus's aunt, which would make James and John Jesus's cousins, right? Some scholars are, yeah, that, that this totally makes sense. Others are like, no, it doesn't. But so <clears throat> take it. It doesn't really change the, the whole part of the story here. But I want to focus in on the, the conversation that they're having with Jesus. And when he says, are you able to drink the cup? I am to drink. And, and you can just tell here because it, it kind of seems like, oh, uh, you know, uh, the mother takes Jesus aside to have a one-on-one conversation, but Jesus's response is heard by James and John. So it seems like they're all three there together. So it's the mom going up to the baseball coach asking for more playing time for their son. And the son's kind of back there like, I really hope I get it, but this is really awkward. I don't really want to be here. And so he's, he's talking and referring back to all of them. And he asks them, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. Now, Jesus responds and says, you will drink my cup. Mm-hmm. And that ends up happening because James was beheaded. Yep. He was the first apostle. He was the first apostolic martyr. We see that in Acts 12. And John was tortured and exiled. Yep. He, like, he was the only one. Like They tried to kill John a bunch. I, did, I think they put him in like boiling oil or multiple times or something like that trying to kill him, and he just wouldn't friggin' die. And so they're like, okay, man, go to the Isle of Patmos. And so he was, he was basically put out to pasture kind of a thing. So it wasn't like he was at Club Med for the rest of his life. Like He was tortured and exiled. But I'm struck by, as you were reading it, Ryan, when they just immediately responded, we are able. Were they responding in their confidence that they were able? Were they responding in, they, we hope we're able, like almost like an aspirational identity when people are like, you know, believe it and achieve it and that kind of thing. Uh, was it, and so I don't really know exactly how to take them because it's such an immediate response and they seem so sure of themselves. And Jesus doesn't call them on them. He's like, yeah, you will drink this cup. I don't think there's any humbleness in it at all. I think it is self-seeking and they're doing it in front of the other disciples because they become indignant. And it's just a mom wanting to see her two boys lifted into higher above the others. Like a place of prominence. Yeah, place of prominence. So I don't think there's any humbleness at all. And so when they're asked, you know, like, are you able, they don't even know what the cup is. They have no idea what the cup is. He just talked about the cup, the verses beforehand. And they didn't even understand that. So they have no idea what the cup is. They're like, yeah, yeah, we can drink that cup. And then they get to know what that cup is. He's like, yeah, you will drink the cup because I know what's going to happen to you. And they do drink the cup and they, and and they're steadfast in their belief, which is awesome. Um, But like he said, he said, you know, it comes down to God's sovereignty of who's going to be at my left and who's going to be at my right. I don't make that choice. 
So he technically does because he is God. With with the disciples getting mad, like they're immediately like furious, right? Like, are they furious because, man, that was a bad thing. I can't believe you guys did that. Or were they right. furious because it's like, man, they beat me to it. Uh, you know, like, yeah. uh, dadgummit, you guys, like, urgh, you know. You got to the boss before I did. Yeah. I think they're just trying to get, a, they're frustrated because they see James and John trying to get a leg, a leg up and be elevate themselves over uh, the others. So, what, think, Go ahead. I think they're all trying to move for position. Like every one of them is trying to move for a position and that's why they're getting jealous and indignant. When I think uh, they're, they're trying to move for a position, but this just shows the competitive nature of the disciples. Uh, they've all lost sight of the fact of who they're with to begin with. It's like there are 12 of us because when they talk about the apostles, they t- are typically talking about the 12 because those are the ones that were sent. The disciples could have been hundreds or thousands that were just following them around through Galilee and then on the road back to Jerusalem. Like there's so many of them. And so they are already in precious cherished territory because of the access that they get. So I think about like, um, you, you say you work at a large corporation, right? So here locally in Oklahoma city, we have Paycom. So that's kind of the big dominant force here now. So the people that work there that get paid a good living, maybe they're, you know, a coder or something like that. They've never met the CEO. Chad Richardson, who has donated a lot of uh, money to the, my, my alma mater. So I'm, I'm very thankful for that guy. They don't get the same access as the board of directors, right? But there's a lot of people are just tickled to death to be able to work at Paycom so that they can tell people, Hey, I work at Paycom. They put it on their LinkedIn and then they're so excited about that. But imagine being one of the inner circle people that makes an, an extraordinary living and has a tremendous amount of impact on a growing and thriving company and then being disappointed that one of the other people on the executive board talked to Chad and gave him the idea that you also had, but they did it before you did. Like imagine how petty that would feel. But I literally just described every corporate scenario basically in existence because the, these little infighting succession battles like these just happen all the time. Well, imagine somebody going to Chad Richardson and it's somebody's mom. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that would be both awesome. of my sons work for you. Uh, they're you really good sure? coders. Yeah, they're, they're really a, awesome. Can, can you, you give make, them a promotion? Yeah, can you give them a promotion over these guys over here? And they're actually so, standing there. Like yeah. they're actually hearing their mom do it and they're yeah. cool with it. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, yeah, mom, go get them. <laughs> You're going to hit something on that, Adam? Yeah. yeah but, and then so mom is coming to ask for something and what do they get? They get, you're going to drink from the cup of suffering, (laughs) you know, congrats. This is what you want. Yeah, exactly. You know, that actually implies even more. So I think that they had no flipping idea what the cup would, would mean, which, which is kind of a catch 22 as we discuss it because they did drink the cup. Yep. And as we see, and this goes back to one of the greatest uh, apologetics for the Christian faith, which is that you will not die for you for something that you know is not true. Now, you might die for something that you think is true because how many people have blown themselves up thinking that they're going to get 71 virgins at the end of the rainbow? They're just flat out wrong, right? But because that's people are like, hey, you know, how do we know Christianity is true? Uh, because people are willing to die for it. So are Muslims. So are Buddhist monks. So are all these different things. They're willing to die for their faith as well. But if this was all a ruse, if this was a multi-millennia, like conspiracy carried out by Jesus and his merry men, none of the apostles would have accepted their fates. None of them. And because that's the thing, guys, if if you're an atheist out there listening to this, which if you're listening to this, we're so unbelievably glad that you're here listening to, to this discussion. We're so glad you're here. Stay plugged in. 
you have to reckon with that question perhaps over any other question which is why did why do we have no accounts from christian sources roman sources jewish sources uh just secular sources of first century disciples and apostles going back on what they said uh, you know i was i was kidding i was kidding yes we thought we could get a lot of money and hose uh by you know, supporting this guy and you know this is all part of a ruse jesus actually had a twin uh you know this is all this is all we just you know we, we, we just played y'all nothing we have these people knowing that they're about to be torn to shreds by animals singing hymns on their way to making that happen people that were lit on fire to light up uh, nero's court so that they could have parties these people just walk there it doesn't mean they weren't scared it doesn't mean they weren't you know really anxious about what was about to befall them but again why would they allow themselves to do this why would they not go back on it it's not because of just what they believed it's because of what they saw they saw a guy get flogged and crucified and then three days later they saw him walked out walking out of the tomb or they they saw him raised from the dead that's the only explanation for why people would actually believe that uh, i i think of how little what what little it would take to pull me out of a lie and to expose myself as a oh liar. my gosh yeah, yeah. like what the, what like ridiculously small thing it would take for me to be like all right i'm lying and especially like if Adam and I are telling a lie and we're, we're conspiring together and Adam gets crucified upside down right? Yeah. for that lie, right? Like, right. it's like, are you, uh, way we're lying. And it's the prisoner's dilemma, right? Where you, yeah. you have, and I forget it off the top of my head, but it's like, okay, if you, uh, you know, if you both rat on each other or, you know, and if one rats versus the other, and it's just like, even if that were what was happening, I think that's another reason why were there 12? Now, one killed himself, but why, you know, the other 11, why would there be 11? Because you know what's easy to explain away? One guy that walked around with Jesus for three years and he went to his death saying, no, I saw him. He was raised from the dead, but the scripture doesn't give us that. The scripture gives us 11 plus 500 because it, it, we get from scripture that 500 people saw Jesus raised from the dead all at once. And so it's like, that's a much better explanation than, well, you know, uh, this whole Jesus story comes from uh, sacred mushrooms that people took and they thought, you know, these mushrooms were God's semen. And this was like, this is the Joe Rogan explanation. This is like a real thing. Okay. It's I was called, like, where are you no, going? No, no, no. It's called, it's called like uh, Jesus in the holy mushroom or something like that. Like back, like this whole thing, they're, they're trying to trace the language back to think that people at this time thought that, you know, uh, God's semen would, would in, infiltrate these mushrooms. And if they took these mushrooms, it would give them enlightenment and stuff like that. It's like, okay, you guys believe that because a podcaster that is currently high said it, but all I'm saying is like, yeah, 11 dudes plus thousands and thousands more for years and years and years happily went to their desk because of what they saw, not just because of what they read or heard about. Like, come on. I think Dagan brings up a good point. I was watching this show called, it was like about special forces and these B-list, C-list actors and celebrities go on and they do a special forces thing. And at the very end, it's always the interrogation. And in that interrogation, like they go through all the tactics that would be happening to them to get them to spill their lie because mm -hmm. they're lying about why they're there. And at some point and the interrogator always says this, and this is how you kind of win the game. At some point you got to figure out the right time to tell the truth, to keep yourself alive. Right. And right. so the fact that these guys knew the truth and know what the truth is and are saying the truth, they had no, they couldn't keep themselves alive. So I thought I, and when I look at that and I th thought about what you said, I was like, man, that's an amazing concept to think about. Because if you're in a lie, at some point it's going to come out to save yourself.
Well, and again, I think the overwhelming point, which we just kind of passed over, which is my fault. I mean, verse 28, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, there's substitutionary atonement. So for those of you that are really weirded out by this idea, of, <laughs> yeah, like it's like substitutionary atonement. It's like a curse word. It's like, that's what they're saying. Like, that's what the word ransom means, money obtained to free a slave. That is the context of the use of the word ransom here. And when it's saying that he died for us, that means in place of. Another way of saying that is substitute. This is a substitutionary atonement, which we're not going to, you know, fully break out here, you know, as we're, we're rounding to a close. But that's a very, very important thing to talk about. I think what's really cool here is he kind of, Christ is the architect of the servant leader. And I don't know how many people have bosses and I've had many bosses. And one of my bosses had like the philosophy of being a servant leader. And like, he's the guy that's pulling the sled with you, not sitting on the sled, whipping you to pull it. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, he's been the best person I ever worked for. Like I've left two companies to go work for him again. And I think that when you look at this and you can just look at what Christ has done just for us through substitutionary atonement, how can we live our lives as being selfless? And I think this is something that really grew on me as I was reading it was just like, and I was, I was talking to my wife about it. I was like, I want to live my life a little bit more selfless and a little bit more of a servant towards you and, and towards the, uh, and towards our kids and our family. All right, let's round out Matthew 20. Uh, Dagan, let's go verse 29 through the end, which would be 34. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And two blind men were sitting by the road. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them and asked, what do you want me to do for you? And they answered him, Lord, we want you to open our eyes. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. So one thing that I want to talk about here is, and it just occurred to me as you're reading it, just calling him son of David <clears throat> to those of you that think that we should unhitch the old Testament from the new Testament. The, this, they would have not even known to call him the son of David. Like, what do you mean that there would have been no description of the, the Davidic line from which the, the Messiah would come from that was, that was promised in the Old Testament and the prophecies. So that's a really important point. But I do want to admit something that uh, I'm not like super proud of, but uh, part of the thing when you read the Bible that I have to check myself on is if I know what's about to happen, I don't read it, I skim it. And when I got to this section, because I mean, we're, we're 20 chapters in here, we're years into Jesus's ministry. And the first time I read through this, I was like, oh yeah, a couple blind guys got healed. All right, moving on. Uh, chapter 21. And I, I kind of got checked and convicted in that moment to be like, Kyle, hey, hey, there were two blind guys that doesn't say how long they have been blind, but they're blind. They can't see. How hard is it to operate in the world if you can't see anything in the world? And Jesus had mercy on these men. He took pity on them, touched their eyes, and immediately, immediately they recovered sight and obviously started following him. And so that's been one thing as I've worked my way through Matthew for the last several months. It's like being able to pause long enough to think about um, what was actually happening. And this is, again, everyone has their own opinion about The Chosen. That's something that the show has really done for me is it has slowed the Gospels down for me. As I've talked about a lot and I get choked up every time I talk about it, but the woman with the problem of blood, 
That story is like three or four sentences in Matthew, right? It's nothing. And I read it like that. Oh yeah, this woman, you know, she was bleeding and all that for whatever. But that's like three hours worth of television, right? It it takes you, you know, 30 seconds to read it, but it was like three or four episode arc of that story in The Chosen. And then all of a sudden that story is like one of the most impactful stories to me that as he's going to save a girl that very likely was born on the day that this woman's problem of blood started and he, this woman touches the edge of his garment and she is saved and he calls her daughter. And it's just like, I've missed it for all these years reading these stories or even hearing pastors talk about it. They skim over it. Oh yeah. The, the woman with the problem of blood and, oh, and she touched his cloak and they want to you know do a 30 minute diatribe on, you know, Jewish garments and you know why that's important. And I just like, I, I want to remind myself and I want you guys to keep me accountable and I want to keep you guys watching and listening to this accountable that as you're reading these stories, as you're reading them, you've got to slow down and think yeah. about the actual ramifications of this. I know I went on for a long time there, but y'all hop in. Yeah. Think about them being, for some reason they were physically blind, but they, were, they spiritually had sight. And why did they know that Jesus was the son of David? And imagine this crowd is surrounding him and they're trying to shout them down be quiet. Don't bother them. But they're persistent over and over. I'm not sure right. that I would have been that persistent, Sure, but they knew. No, I think the imagery of this healing is powerful. I, I go back to what you said about the chosen. Uh, I just started reach, uh, watching it recently and I'm into season three and it's kind of made me slow down and read this. And I actually did slow down and read this. And this is what I wrote. I go, the imagery of this healing is powerful. These men's sight had been taken and they just wanted to see. And with their faith, it was granted. Oh, how we ask God for many things, but when we receive the gospel, our eyes are open to our sinfulness, and then through Christ, there is forgiveness and change. So there's healing through that. We, these guys are asking for sight, and when we come to Christ and we hear the gospel, we're, at, we're asking for sight, and we get our sight, and what we see is our depravity, and we see the reason why we need Christ. And so I just think it's a beautiful healing to kind of show even those of us who can see and can't see spiritually. Sometimes we get that spiritual look. Well, in, in, in previous chapters in Matthew, you know, you have the story of the rich man who comes to him and is telling him how good he is and everything. And, and, and he comes to him in a really cocky way, right? Where these, these two men, verse 34 starts out, it says they move, Jesus was moved with compassion. Well, it was, it was their posture and how they approached him, right? It's, it's not a, Hey, we, I, I, we deserve this. Like I had a good day today, Jesus. Like I was really nice to somebody. Can you just make me see? Hook me up, man. Right. Well, here's the other thing. This is not meant to be a joke. I'm not saying this sarcastically. These dudes literally couldn't see him coming. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You would assume they had heard about this Messiah healer guy. So we, the things we don't see in the text, like were there buddies of them that brought them there, but like something put them in that space where they were able to, even without all of their faculties, even without all their senses, be able to accept this. It only says all they knew is they heard that Jesus was going by. Right. How there was they a large know, crowd. How, right. How did they know anything Sound. else? Like it yeah. could have been literally thousands of people right. and they just heard that he was coming through. Right. Yeah. Well, but, and these are two guys like in this, in this time, in this society, like having any type of physical ailment or physical, like you're an outcast. It's like, like for being blind, like you are lesser than, you know, and, and they're sitting on the road. Well, they are probably so disgusting. 
right? It's it's not they they are dirty. Like I don't I don't know how many people you talk about their buddies brought them. Like, do they have buddies or are they just like, hey, we're each other's buddies? That's why there are two of them because that's right. It's the only friend I got is the guy in my in my same lot in life and and the fact that like. Of course they cry out and everybody, it says verse 31, the crowd sternly told them to be quiet. Mm -hmm. That's probably a really gentle way of describing how the crowd was treating these two people. And again, I am not so naive as to think that I would not be telling these blind guys to stop being so freaking annoying. Like, hey, I want to hear what Jesus has to say. Like, it's the same thing. We've all had that moment. Maybe you've been at a comedy show or some sort of speech or a concert, and there's that one drunken idiot that's like keeps yelling out and all that, and you kind of feel like it's ruining your experience. Are they feeling that way? Because if you're sitting in a crowd and someone's like ruining it, you feel like righteous aggression, like this should stop. This is an injustice. I paid 75 bucks to listen to this guy make me laugh. And everyone's just focused on this moron. And so like, again, I would have been one of the people telling these blind guys, can y'all shut up? Like I would have been one of the people that have been like, oh yeah, he's over there. If he was actually over here, you know what I mean? Like I would have been one of the guys like, oh yeah, he's, he's right there. And, oh no. Hey guys, I'm Jesus. So say whatever you need to say, just say it to me. And so I just, I don't ever want to read stories like this and think I wouldn't be so depraved. But if you read these stories so quickly, you're going to miss the, the points that, that Jesus would actually want to, to show you or that, or that the Holy Spirit would actually want to teach you. So anybody have anything on Matthew 20 before we wrap this up? No, no, no. All right. Guys, we're going to have to leave it there, but come back here next Sunday where we're going to dig into Matthew 21. So make sure you read all the way through Matthew 21. So if you're a little bit behind, get caught up. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. Our mission at Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness by creating content and forging content. Wait, let me just do all that over again because apparently I can't read. We want to give you guys content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. There, we nailed it. And so we do things like the forging table for you guys. If you like things like the forging table, if you like these opportunities to get stacks of books from Crossway because of the things that we've been able to do, that comes because we have donors. Guys, the only way we're able to put out the content that we put out, the only reason we're able to do something like the forging tables is because we have generous people that are parting with their hardened earned dollars because they believe in our mission. They want us to be equipped to be able to equip men all over the globe to be able to push back darkness. And unfortunately, in the world we live in, everybody expects to get paid. So everything that we do costs money and we're trying to put that stuff out there for you guys. So if you would like to support our mission, go to our link in the show notes and donate. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Perpetua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Face Down Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>